Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Friends with Employee Benefits and HR. Hope you all had a great, happy, and safe Thanksgiving, uh, and you've all recovered from your turkey uh, coma. <laughs> Before you know it, we'll be celebrating the new year, which is kind of crazy. The year Every year goes by uh, faster than the last, it seems. So anyway, time flies when you're having fun. I think we said that uh, an episode or two ago as well. So... Listen, uh, today we're going to talk about uh, employee well-being, and, and it, it seems like when speaking with employers across Connecticut, we often find that employee well-being is something that an employer is planning on focusing on in the near future, but it tends to get placed on the back burner at times. Maybe they just don't feel like they've got the resources, they're just not equipped to address this what, what, what can be scary and, and uh, an intimidating topic of employee well-being. So, and often employers are just unsure of what their role should be, you know, because now when you talk about well-being, you're talking about not just biometric screening, it, it, it spans a lot of different areas and employers wonder if they should even be confronting these issues head on with their employees. And so, meanwhile, 75% of employees say they want their employers to champion well-being in the workplace. So we thought we'd have Sarah Tarka, our workforce health consultant at One Digital here in Connecticut, join us to talk about this further uh, and talk about how employers can make well-being part of their overall strategy. So Sarah, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for and, having me. Yeah, our pleasure. So uh, why don't you take 30 minutes, 30 seconds, not 30, <laughs> 30 minutes. 30 minutes. Not 30 wow. Minutes. <laughs> how far back do you want me to go? <laughs> Like to know every detail of your career. Uh, no, so you just talk a little bit about your role here at One Digital and how you support the team and, and our clients in that role. Yeah, so I support our employer groups across a wide range of their programming. So we might support in the sense of really starting at ground zero and working from there, or sometimes I come in and try to tweak a program that might be in existence, but overall, really helping our employers to get the most out of their health and well-being resources and truly have a plan. So I work with the benefits team, um, you know, just uh, only with those clients really that are, are looking to get involved and, and move the needle a little bit. Mm -hmm. Good. Okay. Well, we're very happy to have that resource here and I think it's a differentiator for us, uh, One Digital, but let's just dive right into it. And, you know, well-being is a hot topic right now, as you know, but, but where did the shift from, because it used to be wellness. So how did this shift happen from wellness to, to well-being? What does it really mean? You know, um, you touched on it a little bit in your introduction. Um, wellness had a little bit of an identity crisis where it means something different to, if you ask 10 people, everybody's going to give you a little different variation of what that means. So what does wellness mean to you might be very different than what it means to me. And we really came out of this wellness from a physical standpoint. The Travelers Corporation came out with a, an early study that said for every dollar that you put into a wellness program, you're going to get $3 back. So they put a stake in the ground on ROI early. Right. And, and that's what it became. Yeah. So that term ROI became synonymous with wellness programs. So everybody wanted to know what's the ROI? What's mm -hmm. the ROI? And that got tough. You know, it's tough to really, especially if you're looking to do it in the 12 months of a plan year, right? Mm -hmm. So we went at it from this very specific targeted approach on the physical wellness aspect. 
And what we learned is that really didn't work. And, you know, we heard that a lot. Wellness doesn't work. But what then started to happen is that we expanded the scope of wellness to incorporate other aspects of well-being. So there's the shift, right? We went from just physical wellness to five or seven aspects of well-being. So a holistic, whole person view of well-being. So that, you know, we started to look at it from the standpoint of what does that employee walk into the door with? Well, they walk in with a whole lot other aspect to their persona than just physical wellness. So we started to look at financial yeah. well-being and, and all the other aspects. So that started with basically that we realized it's very difficult, if not impossible, to really truly nail down a true ROI. Right, right, right. Am I misinterpreting it? Yeah, and, no, and, I would agree. And therefore, we have to kind of think of it more in terms of just uh, what intuitively we would think or know about the impact that a robust well-being program could have on your workforce. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in addition, you know, if you think about it, it's not just intuitive. Now, we know if we, as I mentioned, financial well-being uh, you know, we look at emotional well-being, community well-being, and in this sense of purpose as well. So when we look at all of these, we actually can now tie it to performance metrics yeah. and, and really looking at performance and productivity. So I don't want anyone out there to be thinking, oh, yeah, we're not going to tie it back to the dollars and cents. Yeah. Well, you know, we know we have to look at the dollars and cents, but with this greater scope, we really are looking at the total person that comes to work every day. Yeah. And, you know, therefore we can tie it to performance and productivity. Did, did that earlier travelers ROI stake in the ground? Did that even contemplate those productivity gains or was it really just, Oh, we think we could save on your healthcare spend. Right. Well, it was, it was absolutely, it was really targeting healthcare costs. Right. And, and of course that's important. Yeah. Right. But it really was absenteeism, healthcare costs, you know, but largely linked back to the physical biometric, you know, disease state. You know, it wasn't looking at that wider scope and how that ties into some of the soft costs, yeah. which you know, I know we'll, we'll get to in our yeah, discussion. Yeah. So, so engagement and, and productivity and, and so forth. I mean, it's come to the point where we can't uh, we can't ignore our employees' well-being anymore. So how do employers make sure that well-being is an active part of their overall, you know, benefit strategy? Right. Well, you know, it's, it's looking at the cost drivers. It's planning, talking to the employees about what do they want and value. It's understanding right out of the gate, almost, you know, if you're in progress already, maybe even doing a reset, where you take a cultural assessment. You know, we tend to break it down into a few different phases. You know, we have discovering, designing a roadmap, documenting the journey, kicking it into overdrive. So in the beginning, you're in that discovery phase, and it's exactly what it says. It's, it's discovering what are our goals and objectives. What are we looking to achieve? And I truly believe that that's what was missing in our earlier wellness programs, right? Yeah. So looking back 20 years, you know, folks would just start. Employers doing the right thing with the right intention. Oh, let's, let's have a biometric fair. Let's do a Weight Watchers program. Let's, they just started doing events without a lot of 
planning and strategy. Yeah. So it's, it's really dialing it back and looking at that strategic plan and understanding where do we want to go and how are we going to measure it? And that's what that discovery phase is all about. And then that leads to the next phases after that. And, and part of the discovery you mentioned, uh, what, what, you know, what do the employees want? So that's right. part of yeah. it, that's part of the discovery. Uh, a couple of episodes ago, when we were talking about the multi-generational workforce, we talked about that, you know, there's no need to make assumptions anymore about what our employees want. Right. We can ask them. Right. Survey monkey. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm probably just gave a plug there. Yeah. yeah. Survey no, monkey. No, it wouldn't be the first time we've done that on, the, <laughs> on this podcast, right? So, so ask. I think what you're saying is, as part of that discovery, why don't you why don't you ask employees what it is what is it they're looking for, uh, right. in a, in their in a in a, in a well being program. But but that's scary, Jeff. Right. That's yeah. it's. I think let's acknowledge that that that's scary for a lot of employers. If we ask our employees, mm-hmm. well, what does that mean we have to answer? We have to answer with everything that they've asked for. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's also helping employers to understand and look at what kinds of questions should we be asking? What relates back to, and, and telling your employees that we really want this to be an involved and engaged population, and you're going to help us see where to go. So, you know, there's no commitment just because you ask doesn't mean you have to provide all of those, you know, activities that they ask for. I mean, every, every employee probably wants, you know, a smoothie bar and a, and a billiard table and, and whatever else, you know, massage chairs. And, and those are all good things, but you know, there's budget, there's resources. So, um, but asking just what do they want and value at the very basic, um, I, I think is important. Yeah. It's really important. So you do this discovery and then and then design a roadmap, which would talk about that. For, for how, yeah. so how do you go? How do you start that? <laughs> well, you know, if you can start with a very basic template of, as I said, you know, what are the goals and objectives? What if? And I, I ask people to imagine, you know, imagine three years down the road. What do you envision this looking like? What What are the cost drivers? What are we trying to impact? So. Every population is unique in that sense. And if you want to look at your population, what is it you're looking to change? What is it culturally? And that, that, that's scary too. Mm-hmm. A lot of this is scary for employers. Um, you know, if there's a cultural issue that's affecting, whether that be policies or personnel or management or supervisors, you know, it, it, looking at that roadmap is going to be looking step by step at the plan, what you're trying to achieve, and then breaking it down, really drilling down into, do we have to change some policies? Do we have to train management and supervisors to understand that this is a business initiative? I, I tell people it's the same as if you bought a new piece of equipment. You know, if you buy a new piece of equipment, you're not just going to throw it out on your shop floor and expect people to know how to use it. Mm-hmm. And a well-being plan and strategy is similar. You've got to really help your supervisors understand what does this do for the business? What does it do for our population? And you want the employees to understand it as well so that that culture really starts to embrace it. Yeah. You talked about uh, goals and metrics. So what are you trying to achieve in, in terms of goals and metrics? But have we, have we moved to a place where part of the Part of what an employer is trying to achieve is is more along the lines of how employees feel about working there. 
Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a combination for sure because you want you need metrics to mm-hmm. you know I, I always come back to the business case. You need some metrics, so maybe that's you know culture surveys. They can pull in some of how the employees are feeling, mm-hmm. like a, a net promoter score type survey, but for employees. So the yeah. employee employee net promoter score. Would they recommend to a friend that they work there? That's about culture. That's about environment. So it's a combination of both. We want to look at metrics and see, have we changed some of those conditions that we're trying to manage? Maybe it's a highly diabetic population or pre-diabetic. So you do have some of those um, disease states that we want to impact uh, or affect so that we manage some of those costs. But then we look at some of those cultural shifts and we say, can we ask the employees, how do they feel about this? How do they feel about their environment? Are there changes we could be making? And some of them are very basic. They could be meeting schedules, you know, scheduling meetings so that they're not back to back and people have a chance to go to the restroom or return an email. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not huge changes. But in that, um, that metric evaluation, it's important to look at in the beginning so that you can trend and see where you've fallen short and where you've made progress. Yeah. So you have to take a baseline measurement. Yeah. I, I like a baseline measurement. Some people don't like to turn back the clock. You know, they just want to keep moving forward. Yeah. But I really feel there's such value in that, especially if you're trying to garner resources. Yeah. You know, you've got budgets and you've, you've got to look at the resources that you have, whether they be, you know, carrier funds or internal budgets. But at some point you've got to say, you know, where are we utilizing these resources and how can we maybe better utilize the resources to accomplish our goals? Yeah. You mentioned like, well, maybe we need to target uh, people living with diabetes as an example. And again, Mm -hmm. that's sort of a, you know, a a physical, um, a physical cost driver, Mm -hmm. but, but, but we've morphed, haven't we, into a world where we're contemplating much more than we've already touched on this a little bit, but I want to, dive deeper into how we've morphed into beyond just the physical. Right. Like, so what, what, right. what, what are, what are comprehensive well-being <clears throat> programs focused on besides the people living with diabetes and heart disease and taking biometric measures and stuff right. like that? What, yeah. Well, I think, you know, especially when we start to look at, and, and I think diabetes or, or any of those physical conditions are a good example. And I know it's a little confusing because in in the beginning of this discussion, I said, geez, you know, we went beyond physical, but it doesn't mean that the physical doesn't exist. So if I have an employee who maybe is struggling with a physical or a chronic physical condition, Mm -hmm. some of their ability or their confidence in their ability to manage that condition or really to be a highly productive and high performing employee, some of that is really affected by their their mental attitude. So we start getting into the emotional and, and mental health aspect that absolutely plays into someone's ability to manage a physical condition. Because if, if they have a physical condition, it's draining mentally. It, there's all types of, um, you know, stigma associated with maybe, you know, if they aren't physically able to do certain things at the workforce, they might be perceived as an employee that just doesn't engage, but that really might not be the case. It might be that they don't feel 
confident that they can. So there's a lot of, of mental and emotional well-being that ties back to physical conditions. Um, stress management, you know, again, we've evolved in stress management. It used to be just talking about, well, you know, manage your time better or make time for a walk every day. But a lot of stress management is very personal. It might be related to someone's you know, ability or inability to figure out how they're gonna pay for college. Uh, it might be managing elder care or early child care. Uh, it might be something, again, related to financial stress. Um, and financial stress can be coming for those people in that sandwich generation. You know, you might have kid stress and elder stress that's stressing you financially. And the workplace is a prime opportunity to help employees manage that and still get the job done. So we don't want to ignore the day job, but it's a great opportunity. And I think that's where we're headed with well-being. So do you think that I wonder if now an employer, one of the reasons that employers might be a little scared about actually starting and jumping into a well-being program is because now they're thinking, oh, geez, it's not just about physical <laughs> stuff anymore. It's about, it's also about mental well-being. And then there's those, those, those emotional uh, issues that aren't necessarily tied to dealing with a chronic illness, right? I mean, right. there's just depression, right? I right. Mean, right? And, and depression and anxiety disorders and people struggling with that. And then employers, could it be overwhelming? I'm like, oh right. boy, now, now what do I do? I, right. I, you know, right. They, right. I, we just got, things became more complex. Yeah. I mean, I, I was out at a work site last week and verbatim, a, a gentleman said, you know, I just feel like this is one more thing I have to handle and quite quite frankly, I'm not comfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think that just really summed it up in a nutshell that mm -hmm. it's, it's scary. It's, you know, another aspect, but especially when we say, you know, the workplace has feelings, you know, that mm -hmm. I think employers um, are afraid, where's the line anymore? You know, where, where is that line? And, and A, there's compliance issues, there's HIPAA, there's, yeah. you know, and rightly so, right? That employers are a little bit afraid of how far into the water do I go? So I think that is a huge opportunity for well-being programs to step up to the plate because you can, you can really utilize that well-being program as the vehicle to talk about resources, to destigmatize mental health and mental well-being. You know, the cost alone is a reason for employers to look at it because depression alone, and this, I think this statistic is at least a few years old, but it's, it was estimated about $210 billion to the U.S. economy for depression alone. And about 50% of that was attributed to workforce costs. Yeah. So for absenteeism or, or, or lack, yeah. of, lack of focus or whatever. Right. Yeah, so think about that, right? So there, there's absenteeism, there's those hard costs. We, we know the, the costs of healthcare for mental health are staggering. Mm -hmm. But those soft costs, you know, and we've heard about absenteeism, missed work, we know that when an employee is not there, there's a cost because either the cost of that employee not being there to do the job or somebody else having to fill the role. But those soft costs like presenteeism, where someone is at work but not present. Someone, they don't have their focus. 
there in that regard, you are really ripe for accidents. So it's a safety concern. You have lesser performance. So performance and productivity suffers if someone is not really present at work. So there's a lot of these soft costs, um, you know, turnover. One of the biggest reasons that you know we we see with some of these statistics on turnover is is really about the cost of retraining. The cost when an employee leaves because they're either you know burnt out or they just need a new environment. You know, in that case, you've got the cost to retrain. You've got to pass on that in the that employee's job and and duties in the interim while you're hiring somebody new. That then stresses and yeah. puts the increases the workload right. for your other performers. Right. So yeah, it's just um, it, it's it's just staggering. Yeah, uh, I, and, <laughs> and I want to come back to this idea of burnout. Okay. So if I forget, <laughs> you remind me. You got it. You got it. Uh, but but I I'm wondering like if let's try to make this a little more a little less scary for an employer. Okay, I'm on that. And particularly around this idea of now addressing not just physical health but but mental health as well and stress and anxiety and those. So if, if the the goal could be as simple as you you talked about breaking down this destigmatizing. Mm-hmm. So creating an environment or a culture where people feel safe and comfortable, you know, speaking up right. and asking for help or, or even recognizing when a colleague or a coworker maybe is in right. crisis of some right. sort, right? Would that be a little, yeah. isn't that less of a scary goal to say, hmm, let's just try to create an environment where we destigmatize right. and we, we make people feel safe about addressing these issues here? Yeah. The I think you know, you've kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of, of culture, because that's really at the end of the day. Have you created a culture where the ability to talk about a, a psychologically safe environment where employees feel that not only do they can they talk about this, but do they know where to go when they need to talk about it? So employers can really do a lot in that arena with a very simplified approach, um, you know, knowing the impact and potentially even presenting what is the impact that mental health has on the workplace. If you can communicate that to employees, then make them um, aware of the affordable and accessible resources that they have, destigmatize, so talking about this, that's part of that, and then tying it back to the overall culture of well-being. So there's four very easy steps that employers can take, yeah. right, to, to present that to employees. But some of it involves training. Some of it um, involves training your, your managers and your supervisors, really back to our, our idea in the beginning about well-being in general, this holistic approach that this is a business solution, but it it's also just the right thing to do. Yeah. You know, if you want to support your employees, but you you really need to get that across to your managers. Well, that's, your, why, that's what I meant when I was saying intuitively. Right. Like, you know, we, we, sometimes I get, it's a little frustrating when ROI, ROI, and what are we going right. to say? Like, you know, it's, it's just at some point, I think an organization's leadership has to say, geez, these folks are spending the majority of their waking hours on the job here at work. So the right thing to do, regardless of what what impact it it might have financially, is to create an environment 
where we're caring for right yeah. right and you know the um the uh, ceo of of alibaba you know has a, has a word for this this is called you know bringing human back to the workforce mm, i think it's that. i think it's jack jack ma and he he's great he has something he calls the love quotient right the love cue that he wants to bring to the workplace but this is about caring and it's about creating these cultures of caring and uh, I, I think it can't go wrong. Um, the other aspect I wanna make sure that we talk about is that part of that in, in talking about it and destigmatizing it is that you know, treatments work, but a lot of times in the workplace, employees don't feel comfortable. So this idea of talking about it, it, it lets them know that there are treatments available, but it's about 80, 80% effective, you know, is the, the rate that's thrown out there for treatment. So of, 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 of mental, mental health, health right? Yeah. So depression, anxiety, yeah. all the various forms of, of mental health, 80% effective, and yet only 30% of people seek treatment. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about the workplace, that's largely due to fear that it's going to impact their job in some way, yeah. their opportunity for promotion, their, you know, they're 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 worried that their employer is going to find out so they don't seek treatment and that's a big opportunity that we have in talking about it and destigmatizing it yeah yeah, yeah and people who who have, are undiagnosed or who are going untreated for a mental health condition cost more their health care costs are more in total oh. Right. So it's all connected. And sure. I know you said that you, before. And so, you know, we can't, but I kind of feel like, you know, you could tell people, oh, you need to get a biometric screening and check your blood pressure and, and, and check your cholesterol and your weight and all, all that stuff. And does that really make people feel like, does that make them feel like their employer really cares about them? But, well, but, when you start talking about, we really care about your emotional and mental well-being just mm -hmm. as much. I, I think that that just, I think that that more than anything demonstrates uh, this this caring culture that yeah. you talked about. Yeah, and I, I just think a personal opinion, but yeah, but no, but I, I think it goes. You know, we I've certainly seen it both sides of the coin. I guess is, is what I'm trying to say that you know you still have to remember that it's the workforce. So until you have this culture of caring that's supported in multiple areas mm -hmm. so that we're, we're not operating in silos, yeah. employees don't be, don't be surprised if they're a little hesitant and they're a little suspect. Mm -hmm. You know, not everyone is going to you know, see this as the, the great solution if it's coming from their employer yeah. until it happens repeatedly until this is a regular part of the culture. And, and when employees start feeling better because they're better able to handle their finances because of a program that you brought to work, they, they start to engage, they start to see that, oh, well, maybe I'll, I'll be able to take part in this other program. And so not everyone is going to jump on the bandwagon mm -hmm. for emotional well-being programs, but they might fall you know, into the, the session that's on stress management for some other aspect, weight management, even, even time management or, you know, programs that focus on personal goal setting. So not these universal programs that are kind of a one size fits all. If you can allow employees to set their own personal goals, 
then we're kind of starting to get somewhere. We're starting, and, and they'll start to engage in, in other areas, and that's how it spreads culturally. Yeah. But it doesn't happen overnight. No. Culturally. <laughs> no. We can't, can't no. just flip a switch. I mean, maybe this gets us back off of this this huge tangent I took us on <laughs> and back to because we were talking about basically the four steps or phases. And I think one of them was doc documenting the journey. Yep. And it is a journey. Yes, it is a journey. Right? And yep. so uh, so what but what do you mean by documenting the journey? How, how does it yeah. that? Well that, you know, one of the tried and true methods that I have, you know, there's, there's two pieces that I see that are key to documentation. One is a strategic plan. And the strategic plan isn't set in stone. It's, it's a living, breathing, working document, but it does guide the employer with, this is where we started and this is where we thought we wanted to be. And, and these are the components in place. These are our resources. I mean, so many resources go unused. Um, you know, carrier resources. So, so part of that strategic plan is understanding the resources that you have, um, whether or not you're going to bring in additional resources, maybe outside vendors, uh, community programs, community resources. There's a lot of resources that are already internal within an organization that they're not really even utilizing. So sitting down and going through that strategic planning step is important so that you have something to then document and look back you know maybe it's a three-year plan um, and then you can you can look in year two geez adjust, yes yeah. exactly and adjust the sales and, yeah. and see which way you want to go but document along the way absolutely because if you're not documenting are yeah. you really committed right. well and it's it, you know the uh, the old phrase what gets measured gets done yeah. right if we have it in writing we're more committed um, I, I can't tell you how many employers ha I work with that, you know, especially those that maybe haven't had a strategic advisor in the past. So they've been doing all kinds of things, but they're throwing all the spaghetti at the wall, but nobody even measured how many people attended a session or so just measuring participation and engagement as far as did the employees actually use any of the tools that you gave them. Yeah. So that brings us back to surveys brings us back to, you know, pre and post surveys. I'm, I'm a real fan of that type of documentation because you learn whether employees actually use that information. Maybe you need to do another session. Maybe you need to do a follow-up session where they build on what they learned the first time. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the second piece I want to make sure to mention is the, uh, uh, what I call a metrics dashboard. And that's really just Similar to the strategic plan, it's just a little bit more tactical. It looks at all of the components that you're trying to measure, and it's for trending. And it's important that employers own that. So assigning... Kind of are you talking about like percent of employees that had the annual physical? Yeah, uh, so good question. What kind of metrics? Yeah, know? so it... what? I guess it might vary employer by employer based on what their roadmap and their goals. Right, like. yeah, so... Um, there's usually a section that is, is really physical or, or healthcare cost metrics. And that's whatever we know about that population. So diabetes, hypertension, yeah. hypercholesterol, uh, heart disease, every, every type of measurement that you can get on an aggregate. So we have maybe 40% who are hypertensive in, in 2019. Yeah. So you might, you know, anything that you can document on the, those biometric yeah. health concerns. But then you'd also have a section on, you know, uh, 
topic, you know, seminar engagement. So if you did a session on financial management, how many people attended? How many people actually in the post survey said that they used those, you know, the information that they learned? You're also, you know, any way that you can measure, maybe there's community engagement, charity work. Did you move the needle where maybe we only had 10% people who of our population that participated the first year we tried that, but then the second year we had 60% because we had a communication campaign. So anything that you can measure that you can look at year to year to year to really gauge the trends of your program helps to really build again that business case yeah. so you know and and tells you whether you're doing you know you're going the right direction and is it aligning with those objectives that you set in the beginning right right so you discover then design the roadmap and the roadmap has to have very specific measurable goals and then you're documenting the journey mm -hmm. uh continually sort of revisiting that roadmap map of the strategy but then I, it was the fourth one kicking into overdrive did i get that right yeah phase four what does that mean? yeah so that's it's funny because um oftentimes programs just they kind of end up being very status quo so it's important to look at your program again look at it annually at the very least you know i'm, I'm a fan of looking at it obviously throughout the year but you know after you've had a program for a year or two we often find employers who say well we've had this program but you know we get the same people um, you know, kicking it into overdrive means shake it up a little bit. Look at reevaluating it, tying the successes to the cultural initiatives. Maybe you start overlapping it. You know, maybe safety and well-being starts to work together at objectives. You know, you really start to kind of bring it to the next level. Raise the bar. Yeah, raise the bar. Don't don't be stagnant um, because then people are going to start to lose. People will disengage. Right. Yeah, people will disengage. So, you know, for, for people that are looking to make that business case for well-being programs and strategies, what are some points that they should hit on in their next meeting? I, I think that's easily recognizing the opportunity for performance and productivity. Yeah. You know, that well-being now, that's, that's really what it's about. It's looking at this as a business initiative, as a business opportunity and understanding that value proposition. So what the HR team, if they're presenting it, is really looking at the industry data that's out there mm -hmm. at this point is, is really irrefutable. I mean, you have so much data that shows a well-done strategy in the well-being space can absolutely increase engagement, and we know that engagement leads to higher performing and higher highly productive employees. Mm -hmm but you have to build that strategy. So the HR person, you know, can look to the industry standards that are out there and really identify those value drivers that align with their core business values. And then you make the case, you know, fairly easily because it's once you start looking at performance and productivity, there aren't very many people that would say, yeah, a, a well employee is when they come to work feeling well, and feeling that they can perform, then the business is the one that's gonna benefit. Where they're going to be higher, more producing employees when they feel better, when they're not distracted by poor health or, or other issues that are going on outside of work. Mm -hmm. That work-life balance is, is so important. 
so um, I want to come back to this idea of burnout. Yeah, burnout. Okay. Uh, which has recently taken the workplace by storm, this, this idea of, of, uh, of burnout. So what do we as employers need to watch out for when it comes to, to burnout? What actions should employers then take once they've noticed that, that, that there's burnout happening within their workforce? Yeah, so there's, there's, a, there's a lot to that question, Jeff. <laughs> um, you know, I tell employers to think about it like this, that, you know, and there's, you may have heard this adage that, you know, it's better to put a fence at the edge of the cliff than an ambulance down in the valley. Mm -hmm. So I, I ask employers now to kind of be thinking like that, especially with regard to burnout. We, we need to be more proactive because it's been kind of thought of that, oh yeah, well, that's, that's just, that, that's an overachiever. They take on too much. Um, I actually listened to a, uh, a talk radio show a couple weeks back and, and a caller called in and said, you know, burnout, I, I don't believe in that. I think, it's, I think that's just somebody who took on too much. So really looking at this and identifying what are the signs and symptoms is important for employers and understand that it actually is now a diagnosable illness. So they're burnout, burnout, right? Really? So yeah, so and that's that's so relatively new. Signs? So signs and symptoms, you know, there really there are three signs and symptoms that are recognized as the diagnosis. So one is exhaustion, um, physically and mentally exhausted. Second is cynicism, or you know, somebody being very negative. And these are these are changes, right? These are from someone who this isn't a typical personality trait. So it's really understanding that this is a change from what this person used to be. And then third is decreased performance or lack of efficacy. There, someone is feeling that they don't have the ability to do their job anymore. So three very concrete symptoms are what you know, a provider can utilize and certainly employers can utilize to be watching out for. Different than depression. It, it can have some of the same symptoms as depression, but it is, it's very different than depression. Sometimes burnout leads to depression, um, but we also don't want employers to start trying to diagnose, yeah, you know, right. but, but the symptoms themselves are, are really pretty characteristic. And, and the big differentiator as well is that this is, burnout is a workplace term, right? Um, if I asked you, when did you first hear the term burnout? Would you know? Oh, you want the this, is, this is a little quiz. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want the honest answer. <laughs> when, when, like, when I was a kid, someone who did a lot of drugs was called burnout. <laughs> I guess I should have prefaced that with work-related burnout, Jeff. <laughs> um, you know what? I don't know, Sarah. It yeah. relates to work and, and what we're talking about now. I can't, I can't remember yeah. when I first heard. I think it was a while ago. Yeah. No? Yeah. So right, doesn't it feels like we've we've heard this term for so long? Yeah. Um, actually, came about in the '70s. So, Dr. Freudenberger um, actually was studying mental health or, or healthcare providers that were very caring individuals. It wasn't that they didn't care about their jobs anymore, but he was finding that they became negative. They became um, very. Uh, less confident in their ability to do their jobs. And he, he or he 
coined this phrase workplace burnout and that's you know that was in 1974 uh -huh. so for a little bit of reference there uh -huh. um but you know the key is that this is a work-related issue if you took someone with burnout out of the workplace sent them on a two-week vacation to tahiti they'd be on the beach and pretty much forget about work versus depression is something that really can just go with the person with wherever they are. They, they would right. not necessarily feel even better even on a, a beach in Tahiti. Right. 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 Yeah. So it's a kind of an easy way. I like that terminology and it really helps kind of tell me, you know, the difference between the two. Yeah. Easy way to think about it. Right. But so, so you identified, so you see somebody displaying symptoms or signs of burnout, but you can't, you're not going to send them on an all, all, all trip to the heat, right? <laughs> oh, shoot. I was hoping I was going to get that out of this. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you do? Yeah. So, you know, first and foremost is, is talking to the employee. And again, not in a diagnosing right. type of conversation, but it's, it's recognizing, Hey, you know, you don't really seem to be I yourself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, working with the supervisor is important. You know, Hey, have you noticed this? You know, First and foremost, open up the discussion. You know, what's going on with this employee? Have mm -hmm. you noticed anything? But then it becomes about working with the supervisor um, to look at, you know, look at workload. You can start to manage workload, maybe shifting some workload off of that employee. You know, letting them know that you care and that you're not just looking to, you know, say, hey, go home and come back when you feel better. You're looking to understand what caused these feelings to begin and what caused them to feel so overwhelmed because it oftentimes is unrealistic work expectations or they feel that these realist or the, the expectations are unrealistic yeah. deadlines. You know, it, it's largely related to workload environment, um, encouraging them to take some time off. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes, especially when this happens to your star performer, and that's often the case. The star performer just wants more and more and more because that's how they are. But then they hit their breaking point and they're not your star performer anymore. So if you shift work off of that person, what happens? The rest of your folks have to pick up the slack. So you've got to you know, really handle it delicately, but you can encourage the time off. You also need to lead by example. So in a burnout culture, um, sometimes that's because all the employees see is management or leadership that's functioning at that same heavy workload, all hours of the night, 24 seven on, um, you know, <laughs> technology has, has certainly contributed to this, right? Because we have no boundaries anymore between home life and personal life. You can work 24 seven. And, and if you're getting, if leadership is sending an email at two in the morning, well, you're going to send that email back if you see it the first time you see it. So leading by example is important so that there are boundaries and, and you're encouraging that work-life balance. Um, you can also look at shifting, you know, flexible scheduling, starting to look at the policies and procedures that, again, created that environment. And look at the culture. Look at Because yeah. if it's happening to one employee, they're probably not the only one. Right. You know? Does this uh, culture of, of multitasking 
uh, I have to think that that leads to burnout too, right? That we've got, you know, how, how many times you see somebody, they're at their desk, they've got their email up on one. They, first of all, they've got two monitors, mm -hmm. right? And so they get their email up on one and they've got whatever they're working on on the other, but then they've got their phone right there as well. And then they've got, you know, and it's an open workspace. And so they've got the, the drive-by <laughs> peers up in, in, you know, and they're getting, they're trying to do two, three, four, five things at the same time. Like, can employers do something about that to, to, yeah. to culturally change that? They can, but will they and mm -hmm. do they want to? And yeah. this, this really comes back to a, is the culture one where the best health behaviors, you know, are not just led by example, but where health is, is both the priority and the norm. It's not out of the norm. So looking at, and, and this is where, you know, management needs to look at some of those policies and, and, and make some recommendations. Now, you know, the, the phone is a great example because I, I know, you know, many, especially folks who are parents, you've got the phone on your desk because, you know, what if the school calls, you know, and, but every time that that phone lights up or dings or, or whatnot, um, even if it's just sitting there, it, it's kind of calling your name, yeah. right, to look at it. Right. And believe it or not, you know, 10 years ago, even, we didn't have that, you know, we, and I'm, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. It's just that we need to manage it better. So leadership can really lead the charge in that. And really, you know, even five minutes into team meetings, ask people, what are they doing? How are you feeling about this? Opening up those lines of communication and discussion. But, you know, Microsoft did a study that said um, it takes something like 15 minutes for you to refocus, refocus on the task at hand once yeah. you've been distracted by a phone or another email. Right. And um, you know, those that that multitasking, there there's just study after study now that's saying <laughs> multitasking is the worst thing going yeah. because we don't do anything well. Right. So changing our mindset, yeah. it's gonna take some time. I think we're all guilty of that. Um, feeling like you can kind of do a little of this and a little of that, but there's a lot of research on that right now that really says, yeah. you know, to focus on one thing at a time and, and having the, the discipline to kind of shut some of those things down and, and put those parameters in place for yourself. Cause technology is great for that. You can set reminders in your phone just as easily as you can be yeah. picking it up and checking it all the time. So I know we here in this office did some, um, time management training actually mm -hmm. and and i think that that employers can start there is to kind of is to you know train people on how to how to right. more effectively manage their time and one of the things that if you do that part of the training will absolutely be stop multitasking right. you know short brief periods of focused effort short break then move on to the next task right and and right. And, and, and stop this this idea that multitasking is something that we actually do because we really don't um and and that it's a good thing that you should put on your resume hey i'm a great multitasker yeah right. well no that yeah. just means you're really <laughs> sorry you don't get the job one one guy, right? <laughs> right. um okay so listen anything else sarah that that we haven't talked about that you think is important when when employers are contemplating a, a well-being employee well-being strategy? I think we've touched on a lot. I think this is great. But I, 
I just really encourage employers to understand the opportunity. You know, we now know the cost of poor well-being. You know, and I we didn't really get into this. I, I think it's it's about twenty eight percent of payroll is the cost attributed to all of these factors that play into poor well-being. Mm -hmm. So. The flip side of that is the opportunity that's out there and to just take it in simple, slow steps, you know, put together a strategy that really just targets one area and take those steps to, to really work at that opportunity to have, you know, encourage people to take care of themselves and, and, you know, the workplace is perfect, perfect place to do that. Yeah. And I think, you know, the other important thing that we talked about is that it's no longer just a physical biometric right. uh, exercise or, or yeah. thing that, that now we're talking about the whole person. Yeah, the holistic well-being yeah. is, is really, and, and using that terminology, you know, with sure. your employees, helping your employees to understand the difference between wellness and well-being, you know, that you want to help them across those tenets of well-being and, you know, we didn't really touch today on on charity or charitable work, but that's yeah. another big piece. Well, so how it, does that? So let's talk about that. how does that how does that factor in? Yeah. So you know, if you think about the the multi generations that we have working together now at the workplace, you know, you know, younger employees who are coming to work are looking for different things than older employees. So if we talk about talent attraction, who who doesn't want to be an employer that gets the best people coming into their workplace, right? So if you want to attract not just younger employers, even older employers that are looking for that sense of purpose, doing community work, charitable um, events and activities together, I mean, it really is win-win for everyone. The employer, you know, becomes, you know, a, a community engaged employer. The employees get to kind of bond over something other than, you, you know, know, yeah, bond over something other than their, you know, spreadsheets or whatever their, their task is. And, and there's a win-win because it's a feel-good factor. And we've, we've learned over the years that that feel-good factor is important. And again, comes back to employees feeling really proud and having a sense of purpose at the place where they go every day. Yeah. Which, which positively affects their, their emotional and mental well yes. being. Yeah. Which affects their physical well being, which yeah. affects productivity. Which right. it's, it's, it's a big circle. It's about creating a really a positive circle. Right. Right. Positive um, environment. Yeah. And so kind of, kind of creating, you know, company cultural, habits that that lead to this positive that, circle that support well-being yeah, yeah this the idea of the supportive human environment where business can get done too yeah. i i don't want anybody to to listen to this and say uh, you know it's how how do we get business done you know where this this isn't going to work mm -hmm. in my place because yeah. i've heard that sure but i challenge any employer you know there's something that you can be doing differently maybe different than you did before um, and it might feel a little different and uncomfortable, but that's a good thing in some senses if it creates change and creates a greater, more supportive environment. Yeah. At the end of the day, we're talking about actions that are going to make for a more engaged and a more productive uh, workforce. Right. So, so that's that, how could that not positively help the right. bottom line? Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you there. Yeah. Okay, if there's nothing else, Sarah, we always have a, a rapid fire, a couple of uh, fun questions. To, you didn't see these in advance, did you? No. Okay. 
right, I'm gonna ask you a few questions. No hesitation, first thing that comes to mind, ready? Right. Chocolate or vanilla ice cream? Chocolate. I'm doing whole 30 right now though, so this is uh, killing me. Uh, well, maybe you can make it a whole 18 or something. <laughs> ice cream. Uh, favorite movie? Oh, um, Holes. What? Oh, 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 with what's his name? Shia, yeah, Shia LaBeouf. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and everybody forgets Henry Winkler was in that movie. Oh, yeah. And it, I tell you, I love that movie. Yeah. It was a little quirky, oh, but it was a, yeah. That's your favorite. Good, that is my favorite. Okay. Yeah. No judgment. Just, <laughs> <laughs> would you rather be able to fly or be invisible? <laughs> Ooh, uh, fly. If you weren't doing what you do now, what would you be doing? <laughs> um, this is funny. I've always wanted to own a bakery. <laughs> the, the health and well-being person wants to own a bakery. A bakery, coffee shop. Oh, Everybody yeah. wants your product. Mm -hmm. Everybody, they Everyone's come in. Happy every, when they come in. Yeah. You, you make but the granola for us. That's, yeah, yeah I could have my awesome. granola. Uh -huh, yeah, nice. and, uh, and good conversation. Because yeah. that's, that's the best part. Yeah. Cool. And finally, um, it, the, like the one thing, the one most important takeaway for employers to consider from this episode. Oh, uh, consider the value that your employee well-being program can bring to the table. Great. All right, Sarah, thank you for joining us. We had, we had fun and it was, I'm sure, enlightening for our listeners uh, to learn more about implementing a well-being strategy into your overall benefits program at your organization or for getting your current well-being program off the ground. Reach out to your local One Digital team and we can help you out. Stay tuned for our next episode where we're going to be recapping 2019 and looking ahead at what's coming down the pipe for uh, 2020. Okay. As always, leave a review if you've enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so. Uh, when you subscribe, you're going, to get, uh, you're going to find out when the next episode drops. And thank you for tuning in again. This has been another episode of Friends with Employee Benefits and HR.